How can we make the world better? By making ourselves better. The Dr. Joe Show explores how you can make positive personal change by using his groundbreaking and highly effective I Am approach to understand who we are and why we do what we do. Your small changes can have big effects. Join us now for the Dr. Joe Show with Mark Stiles of Stiles Law, Thomas McCoy, and your host, Dr. Joe Schrand. Joe Show, special ASMR intro. Say that a little louder just in case nobody heard you. <clears throat> okay, we'll go from whispering to soft spoken. This okay. is the ASMR special intro of the Dr. Joe show. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Tom. It's always. We have uh, Mark Stiles who gives his all in that intro. And I got to tell you, I need to warm up first because he. He has a very social job where he's always schmoozing people and I could be behind the screen all day and, and you'll notice the frog in my throat. So I got to do some warm ups more often now. Next time think, I'll do some red leather, yellow leather, red leather, yellow leather. I think that'd be great. I'm glad you told me about the frog. We won't get too hoppy about it. I was hoping you could actually introduce our guest for tonight. And we can sort of maybe begin exploring that. Absolutely, Dr. Joe. Tonight we are honored to have Jim Hammonds. Jim Hammond is an award-winning Harvard University Moscow Art Theater grad, as well as an actor, writer, director, and author of Returning the Bones, her debut historical novel, which will be released June 2023. She has performed on stage both nationally and internationally and received grants from Allied Arts, Artist Trusts, Four Culture, the NEA, and others. After a decade of interviews with the main character, Jin adapted the stories into a Gypsy Rose Lee Award and Gregory Award-nominated play. Jin also works as a voice teacher, dialect coach, and voiceover artist, and is known for work in video games such as Dota 2, Battletech, Dayton, and State of Decay. Jin is a proud co-founder of MFA, a meditation app specifically for actors. Mm. It's meditationsforactors.com. She lives with her husband, son, cat, and chickens in Bellevue, Washington. Welcome to the Dr. Joe Show. Thank Welcome. you. I know that Welcome was a bit of mouthful. That, 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 but there's so many fascinating things. I mean, we could spend this show just talking about that intro. I mean, Harvard <laughs> and Moscow. Let, let me just understand a little bit about that. Tell me about that part. Yeah, well, that's that's kind of a fun story because I had to hide acting from my parents, uh -huh. right? <laughs> and so um, when I got accepted to the to Harvard, it's got a very long sub name but yes um i called my parents and i said so i got accepted to harvard and my mom said for what <laughs> oh, nice uh, yeah and then uh, i went there for two years so that was in cambridge and then i actually graduated from the program at that time it was a certificate program but we had had other teachers come over from the moscow art theater i graduated i moved to new york a few months later all of us get a letter saying, hey, we've officially become sister schools with the Moscow Art Theater, and this is your one-shot opportunity as an alum to come back, study in Cambridge, then go to Moscow, and then you would get an MFA. And so I thought, this is ridiculously expensive. I'm going to go! I'm not <laughs> knowing what I was going to be doing, what I was getting myself into. Um, and it's funny, I found a journal from way back when, and... Pretty much every journal entry begins with, I cried again today. <laughs> but, you know, overall, after the experience, I am so, so glad that I did it. 
it was such culture shock and I'm the better for it, I think. That's incredible. What an incredible story. So, mm -hmm. I, I mean, I'm fascinated by Moscow and, and, and all of that. And I mean, yeah. what, how, how do you think that's influenced like where you are now? I think every time my threshold is raised for intense experiences, uh, I can take whatever comes my way or recover from it better. Yeah. Um, and, and I think one of the things that I learned there that influences me a lot now is uh, just around language and accents and dialects and, and how worldview is such a huge part of learning accents and dialects. Because I do spend a lot of my time as an accent and dialect coach. And until somebody gets that, it's more like, a, as a colleague says, you know, a dialect goiter, right? But when somebody can <laughs> integrate the perspective, um, then they don't need to think about the musicality because it comes from the worldview. Mm -hmm. And interestingly, sometimes when people have a negative association. So for example, uh, there was uh, an actor I was working with who we were working on an Appalachian accent and everybody, including the casting person, thought that that should be easy because their people came from that area. But his immediate family tried so hard to create a wall between that and where they were now that it it emotionally and seemingly physically pained him to to acquire to take that sound on and and I think understand more where his people came from yeah. it gives me an emotional thing about it because there were a lot of tears actually yeah no in that's an incredible story I mean our our accent our dialect I mean so much of that can define us and Sometimes our parents say, don't be defined that way. I, I, I mean, in my early theater career, uh, I, I had a British accent. I mean, it wasn't, wasn't anything other than real. I mean, I, I'd grown up in, in England and South Africa, and my, my drama coach, Will Leach, said to me, Joe, get rid of the accent, because you'll be typecast. And, and this, and this was a long time ago. So I perfectly understand this. But how does this connect with what you have created now? Because Returning the Bones is, it's a pretty, well, it's an incredibly powerful story. Tell, tell us a bit about, about this and how did this happen? Yeah, um, boy, there are a few questions in there. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, let's see, how did it happen? So when I was in my 20s, living in Minnesota at that time, I grew up in San Diego, I was feeling a somewhat natural, perhaps, degree of dissatisfaction with my immediate family. We didn't grow up anywhere near other family. There had been a couple of family visits, um, and that's really only my dad's side. So that's the Black side of the family. My mom's side of the family disowned her, uh, obviously she was white, uh, for marrying my dad. And so I didn't know them at all. And I just felt like, you know, there's a dearth of family happening here. And my grandfather was born in 1889. And my dad was born in 32. And so few of the stories trickled down to me. I wanted to know my stories. You know, I felt like it was sort of my, my, my birthright, which is not a word I throw around. Um, for many reasons, but so this was, I started just, this is the days of uh, phone books. 
right? <laughs> and there was no texting. So I was basically cold calling people. I was pretty sure were my relatives. And that wasn't always warmly received, but I got in contact with my aunt Carolyn, who also goes by, uh, went by the name of Bibi. And she was absolutely welcoming. She said, sure, come on out. And that time she was living in Ohio. And so I would scrape together my pennies. I was working as an uh, an intern at a theater at that time. So we qualified for food stamps. They're like, congratulations, you're an intern now. Go down to the federal <laughs> office. <laughs> but um, so I would fly out there. And I was honestly, my bar was, was here. I was just looking for somebody decent that I could call family. And turns out, she changed my life and and you know she had this quality of the moment you walk in she just accepted you for who you are where you're at there's this feeling of peace being around her that was so new to me and so i wanted more of that and she was very humble so that's why it took 10 years of interviews where maybe the third fourth time i visited her she would mention oh yeah i worked a little bit with Dr. King training people to do the sit-ins at the at the lunch counters like what you know or she'd mention uh escorting uh Eleanor Roosevelt through the Howard campus when she happened to be student body president what you know and I was getting whiplash <laughs> so maybe it's good that she muted it out over time so yeah. I had all of these stories and I finally had stories that I felt like were mine from previous generations and it seems like the best way to remember stories is to synthesize them and make them into something. And an opportunity came up to make a play out of it. And so I just tried my best to do that. And I'd done a, a South African play that was a 24 character solo show. And this one now with new adjustments, it's now a 31 character solo show. Um, but wow. I thought I know how to do this and I'm going to take on everybody. And uh and it really f helped me feel close to family members who I'd never even met before, but now I feel like they're a part of me. Wow. That's an amazing story. Let's talk about the book itself. Why now? Why now is because I feel like so many people, especially younger people, have this sense of learned helplessness from the way that the news is delivered. And I feel like when we can step back, take a look at history, understand it through the perspective of somebody who's coming up in the world, because this is in some ways a coming of age story, it's historical fiction, coming of age story, it's got magical realism, that it can show a reader, hey, you know, you're not the first person to be overwhelmed by what the heck is going on in the world. And when this book starts, it's the Great Depression. Uh, and it takes us through World War II. That's a lot happening in about <laughs> 15 or so years. So this madness that we're living through, it's not the first time. People have gotten through it. And people have gotten through it with their, with their souls intact and with connection and love in their lives. So... Yeah. So do you want to tell us a little bit about the story, just a teaser so people can get it? By the way, how do people get how do people get the book? Oh, it's on Amazon, Barnes and Noble. It's an ebook and there will be a uh, audio book at the end of the month, at the end of July. 
And it's a good thing I'm a dialect coach because <laughs> the other day when I was reading it, I was like, all right, in this one day, I've done Cameroon, Senegal, <laughs> Hungarian, and Polish, <laughs> let alone the Texan. What have I done to myself? The Swiss um, Army voice. The Swiss Army <laughs> voice, right. Genius, Great. Thomas. I'm going to write that down. Swiss Army voice. Okay. Swiss Army voice dialect coaching.com. Um, <laughs> what was the question? Yeah. So that's how it's available. And Great. then, uh, yeah, what did you ask before? Well, tell us about sorry. the story. The story. Okay. Yeah. So you could say it starts with my grandfather, again, born uh, around uh, 1890. And um, He's one of these people who, during that precious time between the uh, the sharp rise in Jim Crow and Reconstruction, he took advantage of the fact that there were 90 HBCUs, historically black colleges and universities, that, that sprouted up in our nation, right? And so he took that education that was finally legal for him to have, and he ran with it, took as many people as he could with him. This meant that he became a doctor. He started his own hospital. He started cafes. He had rental houses. He had a lumber company because the whites wouldn't sell him any lumber. And then he had to sell, uh, start an appliance repair company because none of the whites would fix any of the appliances in the rental houses. I went to a um, family reunion for the first time. There's this whole other Hammond branch that was happening. I didn't know anything about it. Over 200 people, I found out more that he had a, a what is it, doctorate of jurisprudence. He could have practiced law if he wanted to. He uh, started dry cleaner, started nursing school, started kindergartens. Just incredible, right? So of course this made him a target for the KKK right? Very high profile. There were things he used as leverage to keep him and his family safe. But in the story, you have the character of Bibi destined to inherit it all and be a target of the KKK, which you know she wasn't crazy about the idea of. She wanted a very small, quiet life. She wanted to rebel by being insignificant, right? And, and she wasn't going to inherit it. It was meant to be her brother. It was meant to be her brother. Yeah. So there's a yeah. whole nother so, sort of mention there. But, yeah, it was a shock. Yeah. And so uh, her life is basically prescribed by Dr. Hammond. And then this opportunity comes up for her to flee that onerous situation, flee the Jim Crow South, finally be in a situation where she could figure out who she is so that she knows what choices are hers. And in the meantime, we have this crazy cast of characters that are her family and then the people that she subsequently meets. Hmm. Yeah. And then she makes some pretty big decisions because her her escape also shows her the parallels between the rise of Nazism and the rise of Jim Crow in a way that was undeniable. So she had to make a decision around how do you choose between your, your country, your people, like, you know, your community in this case, especially the black community and herself, you know, when is it, when do you sacrifice your life and never know who you are? And when do you put yourself in a situation where you feel like you're alive finally? 
but I'm not going to tell you what she does. No, good. No, <laughs> no but people should, should really get the book. It's it's beautifully written. And, and so, Tom, what what do you what do you, do you think? What comes to mind? Well, yeah, there's definitely parallels between Nazi Germany and Jim Crow South. One not often heard fact is that that Hitler, Jim Crow South, his was his inspiration for the early stages of Nazism in Germany. Like there was definitely a, a rhyme scheme. And you say that you know we've come out of it in some ways, and I, you know there's that optimism that we've survived a lot of those things, and yet they still yeah. seem to be here. Well, you just put that image in my head of Malcolm X. A reporter asks him, well, do you feel you may? And he breaks his neck going, no, 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 no. If there's nine inches of knife in my chest and you pull it out six inches, is that progress? Mm. <laughs> yeah. You pull it out, that's not progress. The progress is healing the wounds. And many are saying the knife isn't there. Yeah. But in this case, it it is. And yet here's this this human being who is resilient, who is able to, I mean, very early on, we, we, we realize how bright she is. I mean, you, you paint this wonderful picture of her talking with her teacher and it's clear that she's bright. But then there's this conflict that happens that terrifies her. Without giving it away, we are still in the midst of that. That I think, you know, there's no question that there is a discrepancy in how people are treated simply based on how they look. Yes. So yes. how do we begin addressing that? I mean, we've addressed it before. What do we do? How, how will this book, which, which is a must read, help us move that forward? She perceives that there is an arrogance in pessimism that you undermine yourself completely and the people around you uh, if you give over to that completely. And she's lucky. She is very lucky in so many ways. But one of the ways in which she's lucky is that she has these elders who've been through even more than she has. Uh, one of them is her grandmother, Sarah. And uh, there's a chance she's related to Alexander Hamilton <laughs> and oh, oh. <laughs> was, uh, was uh, sort of banished uh, as a result. But, you know, she saw slavery. She saw the auction block. She saw all of these things. And early on in the story, um, Bibi says that when she and her brother uh, curl up and complain next to uh, Grandmother Sarah, she's about, say, having to go to school. Grandmother Sarah says, at least you get an education about milking the cows. At least we got cows mm. uh, about, you know, getting a whooping. Then she talks about watching the what families getting separated on the auction block, you know. So when we do have a wide span of historical reference, we can see that there is progress. Is it happening at the rate that at which we want? Ooh, not at all. Shaking the head like Malcolm X. No, it's not. But there is. And to see the way that some people in particular 
have been able to get through their lives and still feel love in their hearts, that, that is winning at the game of life. You know, when you come across, I, when I was living in the Netherlands, um, a friend of mine, he uh was friends when he lived in San Francisco with a Holocaust survivor who was in his 90s. And that guy was one of the happiest guys in the world. And it's not because he was walking around with a thimble saying, if I get just this much, I can be satisfied. No, he was able to see the bigger picture. He put the effort in to see the bigger picture. And that also means that when you see the bigger picture and you see something happening now, you can see the potential trajectory and you know when to act and you have perhaps more motivation to get the people around you to act, you know? So yeah, it's two steps forward, one step back so, so often. But if you can, if you can get reminders uh, from stories Right. And good stories hopefully give us connection and meeting meaning. Or if you're lucky enough to have grown up with people in your life. I didn't grow up with that exactly. I mean, really, for me, it started with my Aunt Bibi. Mm. So in, in a way, it's never too late. No, it, it, it is. I mean, you know, one of the quotes in your book, you may not see it in your lifetime, but change will come, you know? Yeah. That's that's powerful. We should definitely talk about that more. But and it, it has to do really with this divide that we have, that somehow we have in groups and out groups. And if you're not part of my in group, then somehow you have less value and you are more threatening and more dangerous and stigmatized. Easily dehumanized. Yes. Yes. And actually, that is one of the most important parts about it is that if you think about that word, it's actually very encouraging. Go on. Yeah. Because if the only way we can really hurt someone else is to dehumanize them, that says a lot about who we are, actually, oh. as human beings. That when we see each other in the same group, we cannot hurt each other. We have to actually dehumanize in order to create that aggression. And I, now that we know it, I, th I think we can use that in a positive way because we are one group, it's called humanity. Yeah. And I think that's why this, this book is so important for people to read. It, you know, it, it's allowing us, not allowing, allowing is a terrible word. It's giving the opportunity for us to look again at who we are and why we do what we do. And that is really what the I am is about. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm just saying we're doing the best we can based on the influence of four domains, our home domain, our social domain, those two domains are outside, the internal domains are our biological domain of brain and body, and the I see. How do I see myself? How do I think other people see me? So with that, here we have this story. I mean, you, you, call, it, you call it fiction, but it's not fiction, is it? Mm. Based so on ways, no. very, very real things happening right now. So yes. I'm curious, what's your take on, on why is there this conflict, this racism and bias? Why is there racism and bias? <laughs> I wonder sometimes if it simply goes back to scarcity, 
and I don't know where that lives. I don't know if it's way back in the basal ganglia or what, hmm. but the moment we feel a sense of scarcity, and perhaps that's because we're listening too much to certain politicians or what have you, then that seems to trigger something in us where that othering, that that um, domino effect of othering begins. Yeah. So I that's what my spidey senses tell me that it just begins at that one tiny little point when we have a sense of abundance you know we're pretty relaxed (laughs) we want to share you know i think one of the for example one of the most painful things about uh breakup it's like that Joni Mitchell song, uh, what am I going to do now that I have no one to give my love to, <laughs> right? Uh, because there's that spilling over and it wants to be shared. Yeah. So, yeah, that's my theory. That's my uh, tiny little theory. What do you think? And it's it's right on the mark because, you know, millions of years ago, there were these limited resources. And so we were incredibly competitive. If you had more than me, you were had a greater chance of getting your genetic material into the next generation. We didn't know anything about genetic material, but that was the idea. You are mm-hmm. going to be more, quote, successful than me. And so in a world of limited resources, that very primitive limbic survival part kicks in. Absolutely. Problem is we, we, we have a poor distribution of resources now. We don't think there's mm-hmm. the same limitation. And that's really interesting because that, that's the continuation of that com- competition. I can't risk you having as much as me. It's different than saying, you know, I need what you want. So there's the yeah. envy part, the envy, you've got more than me, right? And then there's the suspicion that you will take yeah. from me. And these I are think the that's two. what makes the character of, of the of the father so dangerous to everyone around him. People yeah. want to take him out. Yeah, because he could potentially move their business away. Right? He's creating his own. I'm curious. You know, I, I agree with you about about the abundance makes us more comfortable. But what about billionaires then? Mm. <laughs> Reduce these parasites. <laughs> yeah, there's uh, no such thing as a good. So we had a past guest, Eli Ehrlich, who plugged the book "Producers, Parasites, Patriots." Yeah, and I I ordered it, and man, it's it really gets to the heart of what you talk about, Doctor Joe, with the idea of providing value. One of the best ways to dehumanize someone is to paint them as a leech, mm. Mm. like the notion of the welfare queen, the takers, mm. undeserving poor. I learned last year studying Reconstruction the. Uh, the identity of the taxpayer, where it's like, this is your tax dollars, was used as the originally as a weapon against Reconstruction. How was that? So federal funding for the, you know, the South, that was one of the big draws towards Hayes. Oh, so compromise. 77, yeah. Compromise. What's the easiest way to end Reconstruction than to say, hey, look at, look at what you're paying for. You know, there's already that bias. You can just say, look, this is... Do you want your money going to them? I mean, the, the history of the United States is free for white people, but the second <laughs> it goes towards black people, it's no. And we'll deny mm-hmm. ourselves 
what's best for us. Like in the Jim Crow South, when pools, when public pools got desegregated, they just shut them down. They'd rather have mm-hmm. no pools and have to share them. It's wild. Yeah. So that was when it wasn't a limited resource, but an accessible resource that other people started to limit. Yeah. And that that is happening today. How can this book help us right now? Because it casts a light. It's I mean it's, it's theater, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> but what do we do with it? How do we how do we avoid feeling as powerless as BB did when her brother passes? She yeah. Well, as it relates to the I am, um, you know, this is a newer rubric to me, which I'm still digesting. But one thing that really stood out to me with, uh, I think it's the, is it the I see? Yeah. I think she sees herself as a murderer, you know, and because of this, she stifles natural impulses to rebel, Mm. you know, and she just goes along with everything that she is told to do. And anytime it starts to bubble up, she is told, look, this is what you're expected to do. And most people, I think, unless they feel crushed, they'll kind of break out of that at least a little, but she's unable to because her her guilt is so huge. And so I hope one of the things that this book does is to help people stop, take a step back and go, wait a minute, what am I telling myself? Mm. You know, and what are the limitations I'm actually placing on myself? Did they come from within me? Did they come from uh, some talk show host I like to listen to a lot? Did it come from some something I watched on Netflix? Or, like, or did it come from magazines, you know, in terms of uh, how you perceive your gender or how you are perceived racially or how you perceive yourself in any of those ways? You know, what is it that I'm telling myself? Is, is the world my oyster? Are there actually more choices than than I can even handle or um, or am I just staying in a myopic place uh, repeating the cycles that I'm in? But there are enormous expectations of the main character as well. Mm-hmm. You know, how, how do we balance those, the expectations of others compared to what we want to do? How does she balance those? It has to do with privilege. About why, you know, she's, there's an expectation of what she will do. Yeah, noblesse oblige. So when we realize our level of, of privilege, whatever that may be, wherever you are, and if you are in a position to help other people, it is going to ultimately benefit you most of the time of course there are exceptions i mean how many civil rights leaders have been assassinated but also another point about this book is that um it's not just the leaders themselves it's individuals doing what they can in their community or maybe just even within their family doing that little thing with the intention the intention that sets the direction right so um i think i think that's 
how she balances that is because she's gone out into the world, she's better able to see where she fits in the bigger picture and say, okay, this is what I can do. This is what I am capable of doing and I'm going to do it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, she really, she does a lot of amazing things and then we won't give away the ending of the book, but it's really important to read it because it ties everything together for this particular person from the beginning mm -hmm. of the book to the end. And it's, it's beautiful the way people can change and grow. And that's what we hope for. You know? Yeah. One I of will the say without giving away too much that the conflict that she has at the beginning of the book, um, a racially motivated act of violence, um, what happens at the end of the book is something that actually happened when oh, really? she encountered this person. They encountered each other as adults. And there was that moment of grace that happened. I That was practically a transcription of <laughs> what I wrote. Mm. No, it is powerful. And, and, you know, the I am is saying that at any and every moment, we can remind someone of their value. And whenever you remind someone of their value, you increase your own value. And that's what leads to trust. Again, without giving away the plot, what, what stood out is the ability for us to really be resilient in a world where there is the potential to completely crush us down. And this young woman certainly lived in that world. She had incredible role models. You know, so she had parents who were not going to be crushed down, but were aware of what their place was, which is sad. Mm -hmm. you know, that we all have to somehow be aware that we have a certain place. And if we come out of our lane, we can get run over and hurt. Um, but she was willing to sort of expand the lane, and not just come out of it, which I think was really important. And I think it's a great message for all of us that the reality is real. There are these scary things in our world. There is bias, there's stigma, there are groups. But once we can understand it and recognize it, it doesn't have to restrict us. And you can still be kind to other people. It is weird that we have that. We get ourselves into that weird either or mentality where it's like, well, if you acknowledge that there are inequalities and someone's thumb is on the scale, well, that means that you're just giving up, right? What? No. People who point that out historically are also doing quite a bit to address that. What? Yeah. It's not a fatalist outlook. No, not at all. And and I think that, you know, it it you know, we're both theater people. And theater, you know, takes tell and makes it show. But here, a novel like this does the opposite. And it, it takes show, like, here's a world. I will tell you the story. And you now, as you're reading it, will create your own imagery about it, as opposed to seeing a show, seeing the imagery created for you, and then you go home and discuss it. Mm -hmm. So I think that you've, you've created really the world uh, that this woman is living in. And for me, the part that is powerful is I, I think we're still living in it. And we need to understand it. We need to understand 
who we are, why we do what we do. And I think we have a deeper understanding because as you say, we understand about limited resources. We understand more about what it is to have this ancient primitive limbic brain that mm -hmm. is all about survival. I'm trying to remember the quote from Long Day's Journey into Night, Eugene O'Neill. It's uh, Mary, uh, the wife, Mary Tyrone, who says, uh, the past is the present and the future too. We try to lie our way out of it, but life won't let us. Mm. <laughs> yeah. So just that it's all it's all connected. It's it, redirectable, but it's all connected. It is. And 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 I think we have a different understanding of why we do what we do now. I think we have a deeper understanding of the survival mechanism, but we also have a new part of our brain, the prefrontal cortex, the part that's right behind your forehead that's responsible for solving problems, executing a plan, and anticipating what will happen next. And that's the part that we really need to count on. Because if we keep doing what we're doing, what do we really think will happen next? Yeah. Yeah. We'll destroy ourselves. Would you say that recognizing our own biases is a prefrontal cortex function? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. That is absolutely prefrontal. Recognition is that, that sense, oh, now I understand. The feeling part, the limbic part, is the part that can be irrational and impulsive and emotional. It happens to be where addictions live as well and where memory lives. It's this ancient, ancient part of our brain. But we have this new part, the prefrontal cortex. So the story, Returning the Bones, how did you come up with that title, by the way? <laughs> well, <laughs> you know, one of my visits to Auntie Bibi, um, I was rummaging around in the basement through albums and boxes and things, and... I came across a small wooden box and then I opened the box and there were a smattering of bones in there. And, you know, she hadn't been a surgeon in a long time. And because uh, she was a, a surgeon in OBGYN and then a psychiatrist. Uh, but I, I came upstairs and tenderly opened it and said, Auntie, what, what's this? <laughs> and so she told me um an aspect of the story that happens in the book and i said we have to get this to the 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 holocaust museum right away or or someplace to, with the so the dna can get tested or and um when i was asking various doctors at that time you know is this enough and they're like no there's not enough to do any dna testing it might be different now and so this is something i i want to do this year because that was uh shortly after 2000 when i was going around from place to place and uh temples you know i was like uh so these are from this place can we please bury them and they're like they're okay so there's a really good chance that these are jewish bones but we don't know for sure, so we just can't. And so part of the reason I'm telling the story is uh, to, you, it's, gosh, I don't even know how to say it. Um, 
that this is the closest I can get to to giving them their due, at least until uh, DNA testing gets better, which it might be now, I hope. Huh. I hope. Yeah. So that was rather startling <laughs> when that happened. I mean, it, 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 it ties in with, with one of the IM things, you know, small changes can have big effects. I mean, there is a small change just to uncover these bones and boom, yeah. set you off on this real path. That's so much of what genealogy can be too. Mm -hmm. Just finding out one little detail yeah. in a family history can right. change how you think about yourself. And, and that is again, the first truth of the I am because these four domains interconnect, the social, home, biological, the IC, a small change in any of the domains can have a big effect. We don't need to change everything. So Jim Hammond, what, what small change can you recommend to our listeners based on what we're talking about tonight? I think one small change is to look, if, if there's a story, let's say in the news, that um, is impairing your function, <laughs> I think it would be good to look for precedence in the news. Uh, we're so lucky now that we have uh, all of these search engines. I mean, you know, there's, there, there, so many sides to that, but if there's something that is racking our hearts, you can probably find a precedent and and step back and see how did people deal with it at that time. For example, the conversation around um, the Spanish flu, right? When we were in lockdown, a lot of us looked to that. Um, a, for how long is this gonna take? So I know my husband and I, as soon as it started, we are like, you know what? Let's just mentally prepare ourselves for two, two and a half years, because that's what happened then. Right. And a lot of people looked uh, for stories of how people dealt with it. But one of the interesting things then was that everybody was used to losing members of their family mm. uh, to, to disease, to uh, factory accidents, all of that kind of stuff. So the, 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 concepts the framework around death is so different than what it is now and that's something to think about right mm -hmm. which i feel like be... we're returning to tradition in that respect yeah it can be a kind of a backwards blessing and 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 help you understand especially if there's a family connection what your family survived and what you are capable of right yeah. so i think looking for precedence i think that's a great great idea because it's true, we, we have the past, we can pull up these memories, we can learn, but that mm -hmm. has to be applied to the future. So how are we gonna manage things now, but also how do we use what we've learned before, the precedents before, so perhaps we don't need to go down the same path. But too. I mean, small changes can have big effects. You, you can't get much smaller than a coronavirus. So look at <laughs> that. You know, huge effect. So, yeah. so the small change, the other small change, of course, folks, is, is by the book. But mm -hmm. with that in mind, um, the second truth of the I am is everyone has one. Mm -hmm. Everyone is doing the best they can and is interested through their IC domain and what you think or feel about them, which has an effect on their biological domain because, you know, it feels different when you feel respected or disrespected. Mm and you're part of someone's home or social domain. So the second truth of the I am 
You control no one, but you influence everyone. And you get to choose the kind of influence you want to be. Jen Hammond, author of Returning <laughs> the Bones. What kind of influence do you want to be? I hope that through this story and through, oh, I'm such an actor, I get so overclamped, <laughs> that um, this story, living in them, that there can be a ripple effect of that sense of peace, that sense of grace that I felt when I first encountered my aunt and that can I continued to encounter. And recently as I've gone through things again, um, I, there was a video that an hour is a video. So I was, I was looking for one thing, but I came across this and it is a poem from her grandmother, Sarah, who had grown up a slave. And this prayer was from us, the desire to condemn other folk. Give to us eyes to see the good in everyone we meet. Mm -hmm. And that is what she lived by. Yeah. So I hope that so so that so what you just said seeing the good in everyone yeah that is exactly the i am the i am is saying you know let's look at each other and try to understand why we do what we do based on the influence of the domains mm -hmm. without judging it let's look again at who we are and why we do what we do and you take those words look again and reverse them again look again to repeat something look like a spectator let's mm -hmm. respect who we are and why we do what we do when is the last time you got angry at someone treating you with respect yeah right? so that's that's it so that's why you know uh, when when janet we should give janet a shout out your, your publicist when she contacted me um and told me a bit about the story. I really wanted you to come on the show because I think it's time. You know, we have an opportunity in this world that we are in right now mm -hmm. to look again at other people without doing to them what they may be doing to you. Yeah. Yeah. And let's look again and understand it. And, I, and you're right. It, it is about this perception of somehow a limited resource. Mm -hmm. But we don't have to do that anymore. We got yeah. all kind of stuff. Yeah, we're not all living on alone, the Netflix series, you know. <laughs> so, That's right. That's right. That's yeah. right. So I really appreciate the conversation. Uh, tell us once again how we get the book. You can purchase Returning the Bones on Amazon. And I think today's an Amazon Prime Day. And um, <laughs> at least today is. Um, and you can find it on Barnes & Noble. That's great. So folks, yeah. pick it up. Returning the Bones by Jen Hammond. It's a great read. Jen, thanks Thank so much you. for being here tonight with us on the Dr. Joe Show. It's been Thank a pleasure. You. Honor and a pleasure. Tom, we'll see you next week. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Marilyn Monroe swallowed the pill. Did she do it for love or was she tired of the thrill?